This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Tuesday, time to talk politics, and it is the morning after municipal elections, 417 of them, which yielded few surprises, a nod to incumbency and the lowest voter turnout in history. In Toronto, that was 29%. John Tory sailed to a third term as mayor with 62% of the vote. But here is the disappointing math. 62% of 29% is just under 18, which means the mayor of the city's, the country's, excuse me, largest city was elected by under 18% of eligible voters. Meanwhile, The province is taking the lead on issues of housing and development with an announcement on zoning and other things related this afternoon. And here's one that has us scratching our heads. Why is Doug Ford fighting a summons to appear before the inquiry into the use of emergency powers to end the convoy protest? Ford was the only premier to support this, and he's been vocal about his support. So why this? And now, the Recovering Politicians Panel. And now I'm joined by Howard Hampton, former Ontario NDP leader, Hugh Siegel, former Senator of Canada, and John Malloy, former Ontario Liberal MPP, who served as a cabinet minister under Dalton McGuinty and Kathleen Wynne. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us. Nice to be here. Hi, Libby. Hi. So uh, let's start with the provincial stuff. Uh, So why is Doug Ford trying to fight this summons? Hugh? Um, I'll tell you why I think he doesn't want to appear. I mean, there is a bit of a tradition where provincial officials don't appear before federal uh, inquiries or committees, but I don't think that's the issue. I think the issue is, if you recall, when the convoy started, there were a bunch of conservatives, Pierre Polyev, uh, Mr. Scheer, and others, uh, who said, you know, we don't want to pick a fight with these convoy folks because they're really just the right wing of our own party, and they could be of some value to us. And if you look at the early days of the convoy and its arrival in Ottawa, uh, the premier was pretty silent. Uh, and I don't know whether the convoy had someone representing them who was close to the premier. I have no sense of that. But it took a few events, including the closing of the borders, before the premier got on side, you know, declaring a provincial emergency and all the rest. So my suspicion is, all things being equal, he does not want to be questioned under oath about when he decided to have an emergency declaration and why it took so long. John Malloy, do you agree with that? I mean, from the beginning, they were also saying this is a policing matter. And, uh, you know, Doug Ford has very recently been reelected with a big majority. And, uh, you know, by the time he's up for reelection again, nobody's going to remember this, I wouldn't think. I mean, I uh, I think Hugh's analysis might be might be correct, but I uh, you know, to what, what was said in the introduction, I'm scratching my head on why I would do this. The only thing I can think of is they're being too clever by half. Uh, you know, too many strategists in a room come up with the idea that somehow if we keep him away and they won't ask embarrassing questions and that sort of thing. I suspect that if Premier Ford went, if Sylvia Jones went, that it might make headlines for about a day and a half and then and then be forgotten. I mean, I can't think, other than what Hugh's talking about, some of the timing issues, I can't think of what, what they'd be, be hiding. And I mean, right now, Premier Ford's got four years under his belt. I think he could uh, he could make his way through it through a committee, either by avoiding avoiding some of the more delicate issues or just being really boring. <laughs> I'm, I'm scratching my head. I'm not, I'm not sure why they would do this, but I'm also not sure why they won't release their mandate letters and they're going to the Supreme Court. I mean, they seem to have this stubborn 
streak, which, uh, as I say, maybe too many strategists in a room. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I, I've seen explanations that may, maybe it's they don't want to set a precedent, Howard. Uh, I mean, the opposite side of this is that with them refusing, people are starting to think, especially people with a conspiratorial bent, are starting to think they're hiding something. I mean, personally, I don't think they're hiding anything. But, uh, Howard, what's your take on it? I think he was hit it on the head. Um, I, I think initially when uh, you know the, the convoy protest started, uh, Doug Ford and his government tried to keep their heads down, tried to say nothing, tried to uh, pretend this was a policing issue. Um, and uh, and then as soon as the uh, Windsor auto trade was affected, and it was going to have a very a negative effect on Ontario's economy and possibly even a long-lasting effect, the government changed its position. And I, I, I suspect that there's out there, there are emails uh, that uh, indicate, uh, you know, possibly some embarrassing things for Premier Ford and uh, the government, but they also may be some emails that indicate the conflict within uh, his government and the and the conflict uh, generally, uh, you know, perhaps back and forth with some of the leading spokespersons for the Conservatives federally. So, in the interest of uh, avoiding embarrassment for the government and perhaps personal embarrassment and also embarrassment vis-a-vis the federal cousins, I think they might just like to to lie low and avoid anything on this. Hmm. Hugh, I mean, one of the things, uh, interesting take on it from Lisa Wright, she said, well, the, what this inquiry is really about is, can the federal government step in with emergency powers if, uh, you know, the police are completely incompetent, basically? Uh, I mean, I think that what we're learning from this is that, you know, the police wouldn't have needed this uh, if, if, if they could do the job. Well, Libby, I think if we go through any major uh, police engagement that involves a large amount of people, a large amount of risk, uh, whether intelligence was uh, carefully assessed by the police forces, we always find some gaps between what would have been perfect performance and what actually happens. Remember, there was a CSIS report about individuals blowing up bombs in the forest area of uh, B.C. before uh, those same individuals ended up putting a bomb on an aircraft which killed hundreds of Canadians on that Air India flight. And what was clear was CSIS and the local police were not engaging in a way that allowed that matter of urgency to get to the top of the list. So I'm not surprised that we're finding some of that in this process. And look, the good thing for Perrin Beatty, who was the defense minister who brought in the new Emergencies Act, was mandating that there would be an inquiry by statute so that all Canadians would find out what worked well and what didn't and what we could do better in the future. And nobody could hide behind the Emergencies Act as a reason not to tell the truth. Well, yeah, John, though, I, I have to say that what we have heard so far about the level of dysfunction uh, inside the Ottawa police and between the Ottawa police and the other levels of police, I mean, it's, it's uh, again, another head scratcher. Yeah, and I mean, I listen. I'm not. Uh, I, I, I'm not suggesting we get rid of federalism, but uh, boy, it brings to light some of the weaknesses to have so many different levels of government involved with this. Uh, I lived in Ottawa for many years, and I mean, that was always the joke about how many different levels of government there were, and the predominance of the federal government, and yet it doesn't have as much authority as the city. And the you know, all that sort of thing is coming out right now. Uh, uh, you know, in, in a huge, uh, huge measure in these uh, testimony. And I think it it shows that we've got to figure out a better way when it comes to security to to work together, because the, the turf wars, I think, were, were a main reason behind the dysfunction. Uh, yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the other side of it is, you know, the, the scope of this inquiry is just to see if those powers were needed. So I, I don't know that, you know, we can even look forward to anything coming out of this, Howard. Well, I think something that is 
if, if we think historically, police really have trouble handling demonstrations, protests, um, where the issue is, is, is not necessarily uh, peace and security. The issue is protests about something. Uh, so, you know, if, if you think back, I mean, <laughs> go back to when I was a university student and, and what happened in Quebec, okay, with, with uh, separatists and, and uh, kidnapping and so on. The, the uh, Montreal police had great difficulty with that. The RCMP had great difficulty with that. If you, you think about, uh, you know, just go back and think about the Toronto Police Service and trying to handle the protests that occurred, okay, when, you know, the whole global economy debate was brought to Toronto and, and, and brought, to, uh, brought to Canada. And the great difficulty the police had in handling that, knowing what boundaries they should, uh, you know, they should uh, stand on and, and what they should permit. And, and I, you know, I think this is another example. Police feel very uncomfortable when they get involved with something that has political overtones or international political overtones, and they really don't know what, what the boundaries are and what they should be doing and what they shouldn't be doing. And I, I think you know, what this illustrates is they were looking for some, for some direction, all right, from their political masters, not in, in terms of laying criminal charges or that, but how, how should this be handled? Uh, and, and I, you know, from, from my perspective, I feel for the people at the Ottawa Police Service because uh, you have a provincial government that wasn't saying much. You had a municipal government that didn't seem to know what they were doing as well. And you had a federal government uh, that, that, by and large, you know, was hearing from people in Ottawa saying, you know, these people are taking away from our city. Do something. This is the national capital. So, you know, this is one of the situations where I really feel for police services, because in my view, there was a lack of political leadership at all levels. Uh, yet uh, it was very easy to say, blame the police, blame the police, blame the police. OK, I think that might be that might be a first for you, Howard, where you feel for the police. Uh, we will uh, hold you to that. Let's turn to municipal politics. And Hugh Siegel, I mean, virtually no surprises. And we expected a low turnout. But boy, uh, this was lower than low, at least in Toronto. Well, and we had a very low turnout in Kingston, where I live, and the mayor, who I think is a pretty decent fellow, got reelected with 70% of the vote. But I think the problem is really voters deciding that it is in their interest to vote, and it matters how they vote. Um, in many cases, when you have a relatively popular income, like Mr. Tory, or uh, here in Kingston, Mr. Patterson, there will be other people running, but the notion anybody else has a chance of winning is pretty diminished, so therefore that does not encourage people to show up. People will show up to vote when they think it's a close election, and their vote may count. Problem number one. Problem number two, and this really relates to what may or may not be happening this afternoon relative to new zoning rules, if the provincial government, <clears throat> depending on how they put those zoning rules forward, but in such a way where the municipalities actually lose the existing authority they have under the Municipal Act, that will further diminish the salience of municipal government, which is not going to increase the amount of people who show up to vote. And, you know, it, it's an ironic thing, because on the one hand, Ford granted uh, Tory and Ottawa and probably others strong mayor powers for housing, but, but he's kind of big-footing them, uh, uh, John, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's been a very strange uh, uh, situation under Mr. Ford because he gave more power to uh, uh, the planning tribunal and, and other bodies, and I know in my own community, developers go through, you know, they go through the motions to bring something forward, and as soon as they can, they get it in front of what's called LPAT, the, the planning tribunal, because... Uh, you know, they have a sense they're going to win there. I mean, this bypassing the local municipalities has become very, very commonplace. We've seen the Ford government uh, encroaching with ministers' orders and things on, on municipalities. They've really, 
been taking away their their power. Yet at the same time, they passed these laws to give more power to Ottawa and and Toronto mayors, and now this announcement this afternoon. So I, I mean, I think they put some some things in the window to try to, I guess, give people the sense that municipalities have power, but their action has been very much to to take away their power, which. You know, maybe that was part of the reason that people are, are just not engaged with the municipal government because they don't see them taking any leadership. Although the one thing I find is interesting, when I first entered politics, you went to the municipal level and then graduated to the provincial oh. level. And now it seems you become a provincial uh, politician and then you run municipally, as Andrea Horvath and Stephen Del Duca and others have. Well, yeah, uh, that is another interesting phenomenon. We're, we're going to be talking to Stephen Del Duca shortly, uh, and boy, it was a squeaker, though. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, Howard, I mean, uh, is it a good thing the province is stepping in? It seems to be. I mean, what they're saying it is is to build more housing. Uh, what it looks like, a lot of it, the shape of it is just giving developers more free reign. Well, I think, I think on the one hand, the Ford government wants to be perceived as doing something, all right? And uh, especially in the short term. Uh, municipalities are, are, are very much concerned about the long-term costs. So we have to provide sewer. We have to provide water. We have to look after issues like libraries. We have to look after issues like policing. We have to look after issues uh, like, like, like fire. And we have to look after issues like what's going to happen to transportation plans. And I, and I, this is my take on it. You can all disagree with it. I think the Ford government is doing things whereby they can say to people, oh, we did this to move things along. Uh, and uh, nobody's asking, all right, what is this going to mean in terms of uh, longer-term transportation issues, public transit, uh, the building of, uh, of arterial roads, the building of perhaps you know, more four-lane highways. What's it going to mean in terms of providing policing, providing fire, providing these other services, sewer, water, etc.? Oh, they're going to say, look at us, we're building the Ontario line and, and Highway uh, 413. Well, they, they, they can try that, but... It, I mean, the reality is municipalities worry about these things because they know that uh, you know, speedy development here or speedy development there or quick and easy approval here always has longer-term consequences in terms of transportation, fire, policing, sewer, water, all of these things. And so municipalities become mindful of it. So uh, here's what I think the Ford government is actually doing. They want kudos for saying we've done something. But when the long-term costs start to appear of this, and that may take eight or ten years down the road, somebody else is going to be paying the price. Well, yeah, that's that's the way a lot of things go. Um, I, You know, these days, the worst thing that you can be called is a NIMBY. Uh, and it's from all sides. is the right, the left, the whatever. And I wonder, uh, along with some of my other experts that I talk to, if some of the things that are being done are reversing things that were reversed back in the 60s and 70s. So uh, we tore down a lot of our heritage buildings in Toronto, and now people are saying it's too cumbersome and expensive to designate anything historically. Uh, We saw terrible results of rooming houses in places like Parkdale. Now everybody says, oh, we really need something like a rooming house. Uh, John Malloy, wh- wh- what do you think of that? Oh, I, I agree that we're trying to find that balance uh, uh, between, you know, having the listening to public voices, listening to community voices, and at the same time, there's such a desperate need for infrastructure, as Howard pointed out, for housing. And, and you know, I've, they're trying to find that balance, the, 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 the Ford government. And but I guess what, what I'm puzzled by and i guess picking up what others have said is that you know on the one hand they're 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 saying they're claiming they're going to give municipalities more power but on the other hand they're pulling it away from them so i guess you know part of it is 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 reaching an agreement part of it is uh figuring out how you deal with 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 appeals to to different tribunals and things like that i mean it's it's a bit of a complicated mess right now and a lot of it is 
just sort of a lack of cooperation between the, the municipal level and the provincial level to figure out the, the, the rules of the game. But I, I, I think you're right. I mean, we've, we've, we want to listen to the community, but at the same time, is the community stopping some really needed uh, growth and uh, uh, housing projects and infrastructure projects? Howard, what do you think? The point that you made earlier, and to underline it historically, William Grenville Davis got elected uh, Premier of Ontario in 1971 because, in part, he stopped the Spadina Expressway. Yep. The Spadina Expressway was supposed to go from the 401 all the way down to the Gardner, going through various parks and residential areas, and Mr. Davis thought about it, got some advice, and then had a press conference in which he said, I've come to the conclusion that cities are not for cars, they're for people. And that had a huge impact in saying to Ontarians, this was just not another right-wing conservative like those who had been there in the past. It's a different guy, deserved being given some consideration. Now, we have a premier who campaigns uh, in favor of building the new highway, going to go through all kinds of agricultural land, all kinds of municipalities, there's not a jot of evidence that the new highway is necessary in terms of traffic flow. But, you know, there's going to be a whole series of folks in the development industry whose land is going to get purchased by the province as that highway gets built who are going to benefit from that. And yet, you and I saw, all of us saw, that the matter really didn't come up in the election campaign in any meaningful way. So you're probably right that the mindset today about these things is very different from what it was back in 71. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, everyone agrees that there there's a, a crisis in housing and the price of housing. I mean, I just uh, saw a report, you know, from some economists uh, talking about how far house prices has to dr- have to drop before they become affordable. And who knows if that's going to happen? I mean, I, I lived through one real estate crash, so I'm, I'm not discounting the possibility of another one. And remember, a single recipient of Ontario, a um, single mother living in Toronto, gets $740 a month. The notion that she can pay for an apartment or even a room with that amount of money is completely fictional. And so affordable housing is not only about having housing that is affordable, but also about making sure folks at the low end of the spectrum have enough income so they can afford housing. Yeah, so uh, the other big thing, and we have a few minutes left that no one talked about, certainly not in the Toronto election, John, is that there's there's a hole of nearly a billion dollars that has to be plugged. And the one thing that I think people did wake up to is the fact the city's not working, the city's uh, garbage cans overflowing, you can't get from point A to point B, it's just not as livable as it used to be, and we have this great big hole. And I mean, I think, you know, it goes back to what we were discussing earlier about the low voter turnout. Um, Low voter turnout means that the elections are fought in a certain way to appeal to that small group that does vote. It means that a lot of these really important issues around service aren't uh, raised, that we're not holding people to, to account, that we're not demanding plans of action and that sort of thing. So, you know, in a sense, uh, uh, the, the, you know, John Tory's relatively mild ride to uh, to victory, he, you know, his feet weren't held to the fire on, on some of these issues. And, and that awareness wasn't there that, hey, these are these are the folks who are who are responsible for some really important issues to, to people. So it is disturbing. I mean, this lack of engagement, this lack of understanding, this almost washing your, your hands of uh, uh, the municipal level of government is uh, uh, is something that needs to be addressed, and you know whether people can be educated or people can can lose some of that cynicism because it, it becomes a vicious circle. Howard, I mean, uh, people from your party they keep talking about all the things that they're going to do that take money. So what about this hole? Well, I, I, I want to go back to something that. Premier Ford did uh, very early in his mandate when he almost unilaterally decided that uh, people in Toronto, all right, uh, that uh, he was going to radically change the shape of the government and reduce the number of people elected. I think that sent a message to people across Toronto 
that the city really wasn't going to make uh, important decisions anymore. The important decisions were going to be made by the provincial government. And I think, I think people got that message loud and clear that, that uh, Premier Ford was, uh, in effect, going to decide what happens uh, in Toronto. Uh, and uh, the, uh, you know, the idea of a strong mayor, all right, is, is perhaps uh, an indication that, you know, Mr. Ford feels that he can, uh, through Mr. Tory, get what he wants. And I, and I think that message, again, was loud, received loud and clear by people. So, you know, why engage? Why spend a lot of time informing yourself on issues? Why spend a lot of time uh, worrying or thinking about things? And why bother voting? And I, I think that is the message that was really received by residents in Toronto loud and clear. These, most of these issues will be decided by the Ford government, one way or another. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at the clock. We're out of time. I'm going to pose one more question just to you very quickly, and that is uh, uh, we have problems, but n- nothing compared to what's going on in Britain. Rich, Rishi Sunak, uh, is, is he uh, going to solve things there? Well, let me say two things. Think about this for a moment. Imagine if we had a new prime minister elected in a party that had a majority in the House of Commons did things that appeared to be uh, unpopular, and his own party would do him in. would never happen in Canada. It tells us how um, the Westminster system is a much more open parliamentary system where MPs actually have some authority and some power. So however well Sunak does or doesn't do or deserves to do is quite separate from the fact that the members of the Conservative Party in the British House of Commons made the decision that this trust had to go. And I think that speaks to the um, to the uh, to the dynamic reality of their political system. So I don't see this as a failure for the UK. I see it as a victory for British democracy. Okay, we've been talking about democracy and uh, how people haven't been much interested here. So I think that's a good note to wrap things up on. Thank you so much, Hugh Siegel, Howard Hampton, and John Malloy. Bye bye. Bye bye. Okay, we're taking a quick break. When we come back, Mayor-elect Stephen Del Duca. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Well, we have just been talking about municipal affairs, and one of the things that came out is that uh, the four Tories appear to be taking away a lot of the power of the municipalities while granting these strong mayor powers. And this just in from social media, we know that the government, the provincial government, is going to unveil some new rules about zoning and development and all of that. And we're just learning that media are barred from this event, which is being held at the Board of Trade. It's a ticketed event, and it is sponsored by industry groups. Uh, Let's see. Uh, By rental housing and real estate industry groups. So uh, hmm. So uh, that is not going to dispel criticism that they are really giving free reign to those industries, but we'll have to see what comes out. The tickets were uh, 75 bucks for, uh, tra- for the members of the Board of Trade and $105 for non-members. And uh, I guess uh, we'll have to wait and see what comes out of there. But right now... As we said, some of the hottest and closest races were four GTA mayors, including the two former provincial party leaders who looked to for and won jobs at that level. Former NDP leader Andrea Horvath is mayor-elect in Hamilton, and former liberal leader Stephen Del Duca will take up the job in Vaughan, and he joins me now. Congratulations. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Libby. Thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Well, uh, it was a real squeaker. <laughs> so <laughs> did that surprise you? I, look, I've learned through many years and many election wins and a few unsuccessful election uh, attempts to never take anything for granted and to put your faith in the people that you're running to serve. And I'm really grateful that last night the people of Vaughan decided to put their trust and faith in me. And I'm looking forward to working as hard as I can for them. So what do you want to do there? 
Well, I said throughout the campaign, like literally from day one, that my number one goal is to tackle traffic gridlock. It's It's been bad here in Vaughan for a number of years. We've had a lot of growth up here. There's more growth that's scheduled to come. I do have a unique set of skills and experience given my time as transportation minister. And so I think fighting traffic gridlock is number one, especially as we continue to grow. Uh, I'll say another thing that's really become a hot topic lately. Vaughan has, has historically been a very safe community, but in the last few months we've had a pretty sharp increase in auto thefts. We've had some additional gun crime here. So I think community safety needs to be a top priority as well. And frankly, just working closely with the newly elected council to deliver for the people of Vaughan. Those are those are my priorities. We just had a conversation about what is going on with the province and the municipalities, and it looks like the province is taking more and more power, certainly over development, while granting these strong mayor powers to some municipalities to start. Uh, and uh, I just introduced this segment talking about this new uh, this event. The, where media is barred, where they're going to announce all these zoning regulations. And as always, the devil is in the details. Uh, yeah. Do you feel like you have enough control of that? Well, look, I don't. Obviously, with the election taking place just yesterday, I, I have not yet had a chance to engage in some briefings with city staff. I expect that'll happen in the coming days. I obviously have watched closely in the last number of months as they've introduced measures to I'll say adjust to the relationship between certain mayors, councils, and the community. What I said throughout this campaign on the strong mayors question was, and I stand by this, look, and I need to learn more about exactly what it entails, um, but if the province decides to extend that power to Vaughan, I get it. I understand that it may, on a case-by-case basis, be a power or an authority that might have to be used. But it seems to me that at the municipal level in particular, you have to take great care as a mayor to use a power that shuts out council and more importantly shuts out neighborhoods, communities, residents. Uh, I'm asking you about the your power versus, vis-a-vis the provincial government, not vis-a-vis the council. Do you feel that you are going to be big-footed on no. issues of zoning and development? No, I don't, I, don't, I don't feel that way at this point in time. Of course, we've not yet seen or had a chance to dive into the details for what Minister Clark might be saying today, but I, you know, I am, and I said this in my previous in my previous life, but you know, in my previous role, uh, we do need to build more housing, all forms of housing, purpose-built rental, deeply affordable units, uh, you know, uh, units for and housing for developmentally challenged individuals in this province, for seniors, uh, and at market housing. So there's a ton that we need to build. I'm going to wait and and judge what we see today once I actually have a chance to dive into those details. And I'm looking forward to working with the province, with other municipalities, and frankly, even the federal government, to confront the housing affordability crisis that we have. Okay. On that note, we wrap things up. Uh, Mayor-elect Stephen Del Duca, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. You take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Now let's bring in Patrick Brown, Mayor-elect of Brampton. Congratulations. It'll be great to be back on your show, and thank you very much. Uh, you're very welcome. Now, uh, the race, your race uh, was, I would say, probably the nastiest race that was uh, going on, except for maybe the two brothers in Port Colburn. Um, so uh, what is, what's your conclusion of all of that, and, and how do you move forward? Well, the great news is we won a massive mandate, one of the biggest victories in the in the city history. We have a massive majority around the council table. And so, you know, the politics of, of hate and mudslinging and negativity uh, were rejected in a resounding manner in, in Brampton. You know, we had someone um, from Windsor, a paid political operative, and, and Nick Cavallis, who came in, not because he believed in any candidate, but because uh, I had uh, had disagreements with him in the, in the past. Um, and uh, he he doesn't understand Brampton. He didn't understand that that type of, of hate and intolerance and Islamophobia um, is very much um, not welcome in our community. And so the result is really encouraging. It, it shows that in our city, um, the vast vast majority of the city have have love in their hearts, not uh, not hate. And that type of toxic politics uh, um, is rejected. Uh, we've talked about this in the past, and, and you've explained that um, 
all these kinds of uh, charges seem to follow you around because you are trying to uh, elevate uh, people uh, of different ethnic Community. So my question is this: um, This time, those taking you on include like the the Toronto Star and uh, the Pointer in Brampton. So um, why do you think uh, they are so keen uh, to paint your administration as corrupt? Well, first of all, I would say the the coverage from the Toronto Star has been uh, fair and balanced. Uh, um, I wouldn't say that they're uh, challenging um, the city. Uh, you know, I um, recognize that the Toronto Star um, articulated that uh, the, the Deloitte report uh, vindicated the city of any of, of, of any wrongdoing. Um, it's why we did that external investigation. Um, at the end of the day, you know, the, the history I have with Nick Cavallis was in 2016 when I was the Ontario PC leader. Uh, he retweeted I, I, I don't want to talk about Nick Cuvallis. Yeah. I'm talking about okay. the star and the pointer who basically uh, a- accused you of being corrupt. Like, why are they after you if this is a thing between you and Cuvallis? Are they just so, misled? Uh, well, I, I, um, I'm not really aware too much of, of, of the pointer. It's not a website that I am familiar with. Um, but in, ter- in terms of, of, of the star... Um, they had they had very balanced coverage, so I, I disagree with your with your assessment of of, of the Toronto Star. I appreciate um, that they uh, um, brought balanced coverage to um, municipal governance, and uh, you know they've got some really strong journalists there. Okay, yeah. Just the headline was: Will will this finally sink you? The latest scandal, yeah. what they called it. Well, and and they were fair and balanced, and and they they shared. You know uh, the the side of of the person running against me, and they, and they shared my perspective and and the perspective of, of Deloitte, and I thought that was a good article, and it sh- and clearly Brampton residents uh, agreed with me that uh, um, you know they soundly rejected a mudslinging negativity and 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 that type of um, attack attack politics. Okay, so what's your top priority then? So going forward, um, you know I. Um, understand that residents want more investments in public safety and we have more calls to 911 than we have officers able to respond so i really want to go to the region appeal table and advocate for more resources for the peel police so that um, our chief uh, nishan derapa has a better capacity to respond to both non-violent and violent calls right now he has to tier and prioritize which calls he can respond to so i think with the growing sophistication of crime and how it's easier to steal a car than ever before, easier to smuggle weapons than ever before, we need to equip uh, our police with with the same resources and technology to respond. And uh, um, in terms of development, uh, we're awaiting new rules regarding zoning and development. Are you concerned uh, about what the province is about to bring down that uh, it might leave you with uh, uh, not much room to maneuver? So, not at this point. Um, You know, I am encouraged by some of the um, rumors we're hearing about them giving municipalities additional tools for, for governance. Um, the only one that I would flag is, um, you know, there was a, a report uh, saying that they would waive uh, development charges on, um, on on affordable housing developments. Um, that's easy to say for, this, for the municipality to, to waive it, but someone has to pay it because you still have to build um, sidewalks and, uh, and roads. And so if they're waiving those charges, who's going to build um, that infrastructure? Um, I, I don't think it would be appropriate to simply put it on the backs of existing property owners because that would be a hidden tax increase. And uh, finally, your uh, colleague, Mayor Bonnie Crombie, really wants to separate from Peel. Uh, and she is saying that Mississauga is bearing too much of the cost of, of the region. What's your view of that? So, listen, I'm always willing to uh, give a look at any suggestion to save taxpayer dollars. The last time the region studied this three years ago, the provincial government rejected Mississauga's request on the basis that the um, external review showed that it would cost more, significantly more for Mississauga residents, Brampton residents, and Caledon residents if you had three police forces or three paramedic forces or three water facilities that we get um, savings through pooling um, our resources in those areas. 
Um, but if there was a report that said it could save Brampton taxpayers money, then I would be uh, all for it. But right now, the data we have shows it would cause a, a tax increase in Mississauga, Brampton, and Caledon. Okay. Uh, what would you like to leave us with? Just wanted to say thank you to the residents of Brampton for their confidence, their trust. And uh, I'm already back at City Hall today working away and uh, excited to have a great, great team around the council table. Okay. Once again, congratulations and thanks for joining us. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, we are taking another break. And when we come back, uh, yesterday we learned that the Competition Bureau is going to be looking at grocery prices. Uh, What can we expect from that? Anything good? When we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Yesterday, the Competition Bureau announced that it'll be conducting a study into food pricing by grocery retailers amid high inflation. And some are hailing this as a necessary step to consumer relief, even though there are numerous caveats about the limitations that uh, the Bureau will be working under. So is this really a good thing or too little too late? Numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'm joined by Ellen Roseman, consumer advocate and journalist. Hi, Ellen. Hi, Libby. So uh, what's your take on this? Well, uh, I read the uh, study. Uh, I think that they feel that in a lot of the media coverage that resulted from last week's announcement by Gail and Weston about the price freeze, it was pointed out that we basically in Canada have three big national chains, and they have a lot of different brands, so sometimes it's confusing for the customer to realize that they're dealing with one company all the time. But when you have three brands, that's considered an oligopoly, and together they might be working, you know, to keep prices at a certain level. And we know about five years ago, we had that bread price-fixing study involving Weston Bakeries and Loblaws, but then a whole lot of other uh, chains were apparently involved too, and we never really got the names of those chains. We know that uh, the Westons gave everybody a $20 um, gift card to compensate. 25, for Ellen. It was 25. Sorry, 25, right. <laughs> and, but we never got the names, and now I read that the Competition Bureau is still working on that. Like seven years later, they're still looking on at trying to decide if charges should be laid on about price fixing because of the bread uh, uh, competition uh, defect that was con- clearly acknowledged by at least the Loblaws and Western people. Um, and then the other thing is that as well as having just an oligopoly of uh, grocers and it's harder for other small independents to compete, you know, I certainly know when I look around my neighborhood, a lot of the independent greengrocers with the the lovely produce on the sidewalk are gone, and it's really hard to find them. We also have Costco, but you have to be a member, and that costs money, and Walmart, which is a really big store. Some people shop there, too. But when you look at the groceries themselves, in Canada, our dairy prices are much higher than in other countries. Same with our eggs and some of the other things, because they're controlled by the farmers through marketing boards, and they they practice supply management, which is to make sure that they don't go through a boom-and-bust cycle where things get really, really cheap and then have to be destroyed because there's not enough demand. They keep the supply quite tight, and that means that, as consumers, we're paying more. And we also know that in various international trade discussions, Canada has been very clear that it's not going to get rid of supply management. It wants to uh, keep it going because the health of the Canada's agricultural sector is at risk if we don't. But, but, but let me let me, let me just interject here. So we had the bre- bread price-fixing scandal, uh, but the Competition Bureau has said this is, this is not an inquiry into wrongdoing. Yes. The one thing that this has shown is that, you know, uh, while the retailers are saying, hey, their costs have all, go, grow, have all gone up, but they're at, at all uh, parts of the supply chain. I mean, Loblaw distributes, Loblaw manufactures. So uh, that argument kind of doesn't hold water. So w- what I'm asking is that given 
that this this isn't even the kind of inquiry that they're looking into all these years later. Is there any potential for this to do any good and bring any relief? <laughs> well, there was a, a, another exemption that they talked about. They're not going to look at the relationship between the retailers and their suppliers because that was uh, pointed out as a, a problem by the industry a while ago. Remember, that was... Um, when Loblaws ran out of potato chips because they boycotted one of the companies that they felt was raising prices too quickly. Right. So the industry itself, the retailers and the suppliers, are working on some kind of a cooperative agreement to help uh, establish, you know, good relations between the two of them. So the Competition Bureau said, well, we're not going to look at that because the industry is still doing it and it'll take a year or two to get that done. Um, So it looks to me like it's a bit of a, a feeler, just saying, well, there's... Uh, huge inflation going on. Food imp- food price inflation is at the highest level of inflation. Uh, we don't know what's causing it. We don't know if the retailers are at fault. But uh, since we do have this oligopoly, maybe we should look at you know ways that the government can try and encourage competition, maybe through trying to break up these big chains or other measures. Then they talked about international studies, and a variety of other countries have looked at it, not this year, but in other years. I think the U.S. is the only one that's doing it right now. But they're saying that in other countries, they have the ability to ask these companies to submit information, to disclose it. And in Canada, we don't have the same power, so we're just relying on their uh, voluntarily giving information to the Competition Bureau. So all these are things that make me us wonder if it will do anything, but it's probably better than not doing anything. And uh, the other thing I want to point out is that in Canada, we have so many oligopolies. We know in the cell phone business, we've got three big chains and the Competition Bureau is trying to stop a, a merger between Rogers and Shaw, but this is dragging on and on and on. In the banking sector, we have five big banks and they work pretty closely together too. If you look at you know, how they're pricing their loans and their savings products, very, very similar. And we've ha- and and the, the uh, gasoline and oil and the fact that you know the gas stations were all charging the same thing. The Competition Bureau over the years that I've been a journalist, which is probably since the mid seventies, Competition Bureau has had many many studies about the oil industry and couldn't come up with a reason why the prices were so close. So it's <laughs> difficult to investigate price fixing. I think as a general rule, especially when you don't have the power to demand that they hand over information about their profits. And couldn't couldn't that just be fixed if Parliament decided that it should? be fixed? I mean, they've just decided that they also want to investigate the grocery industry. Could be fixed. But back in, I think it was like the 80s, they brought in a revised Competition Act, and it came before Parliament many, many times over many, many years. I think it took like 10 or 15 years to revise the Competition Act. Certain things are quite um, contentious, I guess. And corporations always have a loud voice when it comes to lobbying government for uh, laws that, you know, don't hurt them uh, or work to their benefit. Uh, so uh, I don't know these days how easy it would be, especially with a minority parliament, to get a new competition act through. Uh you know, and they're not going to report until June. I mean, you know, who knows where we'll be in June in terms of inflation. We we could be uh, right in the throes of a recession, which might actually have the effect of uh, lowering prices. It might, yeah. They're, they're looking at getting public uh, uh, the public to submit information by uh, mid-December. Uh, either written or, or uh, maybe in person. And that's important because, you know, it's the people going into the grocery stores who have a really good view of what's going on. And then, of course, the industry uh, will submit its own documents, and then that will open up, I guess, some research and lines of inquiry that the Competition Bureau will follow and uh, then put out a report in, in mid-June. So they actually said when they put in the schedule in this document, that that's an expedited schedule. You know, often <laughs> these things take a year or two. <laughs> an expedited schedule. I mean, you mentioned that one possible remedy is is uh, making these large oligopolies break up. Um, really? I, I Is there any kind of precedent for anything like that? Um, it doesn't happen very often in Canada. It happens when there is a merger proposed between two big uh, companies and the government or the CRTC in, in, in the telecom case makes them split off a lot of things that, that would have taken over with this new company and saying you can only get this company if you hive off some parts of it. 
Um, but I don't see any mergers happening right now. Um, and it's interesting. We were in Newfoundland this summer, and we noticed that there are Dominion stores there. And I thought, Dominion, that hasn't been around in ages, and it was taken over by Metro. But it turned out it was Loblaws owned these, and they knew that the, the Dominion name was still very beloved in Newfoundland, so they call their stores Dominion. Wow. <laughs> so people do get attached to these stores. And uh, another thing I wanted to point out is that you got to make sure that the scanning code is working in your behalf. Uh, on Twitter, I pointed out that at a Loblaw store near me a few weeks ago, I was charged $77 for a small piece of rainbow trout that had been packaged in the store, and it was supposed to be $7. So I went back, and I asked what was going on, and uh, the manager wasn't there, but the people I talked to suggested that those who were putting the, the uh, UPC code, you know, the bars, yeah. uh, on the package, a lot of them are new, and some of them maybe are making mistakes. So those things will happen unless we're really, really vigilant um, and demand our refund. In my case, I was told later when I put it on Twitter that I wasn't part of the scanning code because it wasn't a prepackaged good. It was just packaged in the store, and that didn't qualify. But still, if they've charged me 10 times what I should be paying and forced me to go back on a Sunday night to get a refund, they should be giving me all my money back and not telling me I'll just pay $7 instead of $77. Well, I, I'm, I'm just curious here. You had to go home before you noticed that you were charged $77 well, yes. for a piece a of quick, fish? It was a quick visit with myself <laughs> and my husband. And when the, we, we weren't watching each thing. When the total came up, it looked like a lot. But when we go home, we usually go over the bill in detail, and we don't live too far away. But still, you know, we were shocked to see, like, how could you buy one item for $77? Well, <laughs> Ellen, I, I'm, I'm shocked you didn't notice it right, yeah. <laughs> right <laughs> off the top. I remember ages ago, uh, I bought some, uh, I don't know, it was hamburger or something, and I saw right going in, they, they scanned it as, like, special Kobe beef that gets music played to it. And it was, <laughs> it was in three digits, but I saw it right away. Okay. Yes, and not every store um, posts the notices about the scanning code. Uh, most are members, but not all of them, and they probably all should be because it's just voluntary. And uh, not every cashier is trained in this, so they don't know how to, you know, how it works. So it's up to us. We're like the vigilante customers uh, yep. trying to find out uh, if, if our groceries have been scanned properly. Okay, well, there you go. Uh, Ellen Roseman, thank you so much for that, uh, though I have to say I'm afraid that after your excellent explanation, I don't have huge expectations for this thing. <laughs> yeah, a lot of it is just tell them that you're working on it and hope that that will calm people down for a, a few months. Okay, yeah, you, I think you hit it right there. Thank you so much, Ellen Roseman. Thanks, Libby. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.